Uh, before we begin, let's uh, just wish Troy a happy birthday. Where is Troy? Troy! Happy birthday to Troy. Have a great day, young man. So we're blessed to, blessed to have you in our congregation. All right, so the Transfiguration. Well, uh, you all know that, that uh, soldiers, if any of you have been soldiers, you know that uh, basic training is the most grueling time, uh, the hardest thing that they've ever done, right? Uh, for a soldier, it's like 10 grueling weeks of nearly uh, sleeplessness uh, almost every day, uh, and then learning of duty and discipline and leadership and teamwork and respect and selflessness, uh, all these things that are not naturally within us. Uh, and then there is the running uh, and the push-ups and the drill instructor screaming at you and the field training and the bad food and, and all of that, that that a soldier has to deal with. And uh, each week brings, brings new challenges and new skills uh, that a soldier has to learn and master if they're going to survive until graduation. And all this is designed to make recruits into the leaders uh, that the drill instructors want them to be, because someday they may be called on to defend our country uh, with honor and bravery and successfully. Uh, and so that's what basic training is about. And, and most parents say that after they've seen their child for the first time, after they come back from basic training, uh, it's like they've been transformed into a completely new person. They're unrecognizable uh, from the person they were. Well, by Mark chapter 9, the apostles had been with Jesus for about two years now, and this too was a time of very intense training, of, of very hard lessons. Uh, and in the passages we looked at the past two weeks, uh, we saw that Jesus told his disciples that he was going to be rejected and that he was going to be killed. Uh, and this was news to the apostles, right? They had no idea that was coming, and really hard news to hear. And then he explained to them that if they were going to be his disciples, when, well, when they had to deny themselves, take up their crosses, follow them on the same path that Jesus was on. And they were confused by this because this was not the Messiah that they were expecting, right? They were expecting positions in the cabinet, in the kingdom uh, of this, uh, this kingdom uh, on earth that was coming. And so they were confused and his words seemed like nonsense uh, to them. But Jesus was bringing a different kind of kingdom than the one they expected. Not an earthly kingdom without suffering, but an eternal kingdom through suffering. That's what Jesus was bringing. And so, like basic training, Jesus' teaching was fast and it was furious. And he had already taught them so much. But now, this week, he's going to take three of his apostles and, and, and take their training uh, to a whole new level, pushing them even further on their faith journey. And this was to give them confidence in him, to transform them into the leaders he needed them to be. And he did this by transforming them by transforming himself, uh, to give them a glimpse of what this future glory uh, that he's been talking about would look like. And so Jesus peeled back the curtain here just a little bit to give them a glimpse uh, of future glory in an experience that they would never forget. And everything that Jesus showed and taught the disciples uh, was meant to prove who he was uh, and to transform them like good soldiers into the leaders that he wanted them to be. And so uh, we have two, real, two sections in our, in our passage today. One, one happens on the mountain, and the other one is as they're on their way down the mountain. So let's look at what happens on the mountain first. Uh, this is verses 1 through 8. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know how to answer because they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. So let's talk about the setting of this first. This is verse 1. Uh, remember only minutes ago, right? This is all part of the same conversation. In, in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 33, Jesus had called Peter Satan, right? He called him Satan for suggesting that Jesus not fulfill his mission uh, to go to the cross and rebuking him for saying so. Uh, Jesus had to die, and that's the bad news. But here in verse 1, we get a little bit of good news. There are some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. Uh, so finally, uh, some good news. Of course, they had no idea what that meant. They, they probably thought that that meant that Jesus was about to establish his kingdom here on earth right now. And so Jesus was most likely, and I would say assuredly, referring to the transfiguration, talking about what he was going to show them in six days. But there are some commentators who think that he may have been talking about his future resurrection or about uh, the miracles that he was doing during his life. Uh, but I think the evidence that he's talking about the transfiguration is really strong because in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, uh, this verse that, that uh, you, will not see the, you will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God, that comes right before the transfiguration episode. So uh, one would think that all three of those authors uh, saw the transfiguration as the fulfillment of what he was talking about here uh, in verse 1. So six days later, Jesus fulfills his promise, and he fulfills it to Peter, uh, to James, and to John. And what follows on the mountain uh, is three pieces of confirming evidence that prove that Jesus is the Messiah and that they are right to follow him. And the first one is Jesus' transfiguration itself. Uh, and that's what we see uh, in verses 2 to 4. Uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain. Uh, this is probably Mount Hermon, which I showed you last week, which is just uh, north of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, that's the furthest north that Jesus ever went, as far as we know, in his ministry. But Mark doesn't specifically say which mountain it is, and, and really, which mountain it is is not important. What is important is what happened there. Uh, Jesus was transfigured. Uh, the Greek word that is used there is the word metamorpho, and that is the word where we get the word metamorphosis from, right? So uh, when we talk about a metamorphosis, this is not merely a change in outward appearance, like you would put on a, a Halloween costume or something like that. That's not what it means. It means to be changed from the inside out, like from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It's complete and total transformation. And so God transformed Jesus, transfigured him in their presence. And his, his appearance was radiant, brilliant white light to these disciples. Mark says his clothes were whiter than any launderer could ever make them. And so uh, this reminds me of John in Revelation, like trying to describe what he is seeing, uh, but just having the limitations of human language to deal with. This is all that he can say, uh, as white as can possibly be. But you can just imagine his clothes, his body, his essence, his being radiating this glory. And this is what uh, Mark is trying to describe. 
Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, uh, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And this is what the disciples got to see. They got to go up on the mountain and see Jesus in all his glory. They saw the kingdom of God, a preview of heaven, uh, in seeing Jesus transfigured before them. So that's the first piece of evidence, Jesus transfigured himself. And then the second piece of evidence is that here he is talking with Elijah and Moses. Uh, Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. And we know that Jesus fulfilled both the law and the prophets by his coming. And so, you know, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And we know that he's the fulfillment of the prophets because he said so in the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And as he told the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, uh, he said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus fulfills Moses. He fulfills Elijah. And that's why it's Moses and Elijah who are on the mountain. And so as Peter, James, and John watched, here's Jesus speaking with Elijah and Moses. And, and what do they do? They become terrified, right? That's the apostles' response. And I understand that because uh, they, they obviously had never seen anything like this before. And, and they didn't know if they were going to live or die. This, this word terrified means something more than reverent awe. They were actually in fear. They were shaking for their lives. And so Peter, as always, uh, had to speak, right? He could not remain silent. Uh, and I understand that Peter was afraid. I mean, I probably would have been afraid too. And some people start babbling like uncontrollably, well, uncontrollably when they're afraid, right? That's a nervous reaction. It's what they do. Uh, so Peter started talking. And I also don't really blame him for what he said. Uh, he wants to build tabernacles or tents uh, so that they could stay on the mountaintop. He wanted to build one for Jesus, for Moses and Elijah. But once he realized he wasn't going to die, and that it's a good thing that, that he, he and the other two are seeing this transfiguration, he was probably trying to prolong the moment, right? Because this is so good, like when you're having a good dream that you don't want to wake up from, right? This is what Peter is seeing. So his idea was to build tents uh, so that they could stay on the mountaintop. And he probably got that idea, obviously, from the Feast of Tabernacles, but he's seeing this as an, as an end times uh, kind of uh, moment. Uh, so uh, he's probably thinking about Zechariah chapter 14, which is a prophecy about end times, uh, which says, Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. So the book of Zechariah is an end times prophetic book. After Jesus comes again, lands his feet on the Mount of Olives and defeats his enemies, this is what's going to happen. They're going to set up the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is probably what Peter has in mind. He probably thinks that this is the beginning of God establishing his kingdom on earth. And so he suggests making these tents. But Peter got several things wrong, didn't he? The first thing he got wrong uh, was to call Jesus rabbi. Now, he's not wrong to call Jesus rabbi. Rabbi means esteemed teacher, and Jesus certainly was that. But remember just a couple verses ago, Peter called Jesus Messiah, which is obviously a big step up from esteemed teacher. There were a lot of esteemed teachers, but only one Messiah. So uh, it's woefully short of, of who Jesus is and who Peter proclaimed him to be only a few verses ago. 
Secondly, his desire to build shelters for these three, Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, seems to put them all on the same level, right? You each get a nice little uh, one-bedroom tent. I'll build you all, each one of one each for all of you, which seems to equate them with each other. So Peter is not grasping that, you know, Elijah and Moses are important, but they're only glorified men, whereas Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So he's not quite grasping that Jesus is eternally God. And third, Jesus's, or I'm sorry, uh, Peter's building of, of tents uh, seems to indicate his desire to stay on the mountaintop, right? He wants to stay there. And, and we can't blame him because we all love mountaintop experiences, right? But, but we're, not, we're not allowed to live there. Uh, real life doesn't happen on the mountaintop, right? Real life happens in the plains and it happens in the valleys, in the hardships of life. That's where, that's where we live. And we'll see that next week because uh, they're having this mountaintop experience now, but as soon as they come down the mountain, what happens? They encounter a man uh, with his demon-possessed son, and all of a sudden they're right back in real life again. And so mountaintop experiences confirm who God is uh, and establish our trust in him, uh, but we can't live on the mountain. We have to live our lives down in the plains and in the valleys. Uh, and then the fourth thing that, that Peter got wrong was that staying on the mountaintop would have derailed Jesus' mission to go to the cross. That's why he came. And so staying on the mountain would have avoided the cross. Suffering first, then glory. That's what Jesus was trying to explain to them. So Peter was well-meaning in everything that he said, but he just didn't fully get it. He did not grasp God's plan. And so uh, what does he need? Well, he needs a third bit of confirming evidence, and that's God's voice, right? Out of nowhere, a cloud forms and envelops them all. And this is not uncommon in the Bible, right? God often appears in clouds. He appeared uh, leading them, leading the Israelites in a pillar of cloud by day, a cloud of fire by night. Uh, he often spoke to Moses from the clouds. Uh, he spoke to uh, Moses from the cloud uh, at, uh, on the mountaintop giving the law. Uh, he's going to, remember, Jesus was received into clouds uh, in his ascension. Acts chapter 1, he went up and he disappeared into the clouds and the angels were standing there and saying, uh, why do you look for him? He's going to come just as you saw him go into the clouds. And he's going to come on the clouds, just like Daniel 7 prophesies. So, so clouds are a familiar theme in the Bible. And here's another cloud, uh, Jesus uh, being transfigured, and then God speaks from this cloud. And that's the third piece of confirming evidence, is God's testimony himself. God speaks from the cloud, reaffirming his love for Jesus, just like he did at his baptism. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him, right? In the military, drill instructors, commanding officers demand and expect 100% obedience. Soldiers have to listen and obey because lives depend on this, right? Everybody marching to the same drum. And so a soldier uh, is not going to stay in basic training forever. There may come a day when they have to go off into battle and remember their training. And I think that that's the main reason that the transfiguration happened uh, for these disciples. It was all part of their training to give them confidence in Jesus, to encourage them to listen and obey. And they would need to put their training into use when Jesus was gone. So the transfiguration was obviously spectacular, as was seeing Moses and Elijah. That had to be incredible. And hearing God's voice, what an experience. But then suddenly, as soon as God spoke and the words were over, 
the cloud dissipates. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is appearing as, his, as they had been used to seeing him. He looks just like he always did. Uh, and so everything is gone, and all that remains is Peter, James, and John, and then Jesus uh, standing there. So what happens? Everything else is gone, but two things remain, right? I think that there are two things remain. The, the one thing that remains uh, is God's testimony, that, that Jesus is God's beloved son. Uh, he's the unique one. He is specially qualified. He's not like Moses and Elijah or anybody else. So he's not on par with them, and he's not just another teacher. In fact, uh, back to Hebrews chapter 1 again, uh, it says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many various ways. So that's Moses, that's Elijah, that's all the other prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. And so here you see Jesus' unique standing far above any of the prophets. And so uh, that is who, who he is, and that's what uh, they would be left with at the transfiguration. And the other thing is, is God's own testimony. God's own testimony about him says that, that this is the, the greater Moses who was promised in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. So you have God's testimony and then God's command to listen to him. You know, Jesus came with God's authority. God sent him. And yet Jesus is God at the same time. So obviously they ought to listen to him. And so they just were having a hard time grasping exactly who Jesus was. But listening is the task of any disciple. That is what we are called to do. Now for you and I, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so we need to be obedient to what the Holy Spirit tells us to do. And we have to drown out the other voices. There are so many voices that are competing for our attention. Uh, and that's in the media and whatever else we may be looking at. Uh, and we're influenced by these things and by culture. But we have to quiet all that noise and we have to focus on what the Holy Spirit tells us to do, to put aside our busyness and listen to him. We must follow where he leads and call and go where he calls us to go. And that's what Jesus was doing with, with these three. He gave them this mountaintop experience to transform them into men of faith and courage and to teach them uh, to trust him and to listen and to obey. So that's what happens on the mountaintop. Jesus uh, confirms who he is, gives these uh, three a special encouragement and shows them his glory. And now on the way down the mountain, he has some explanations uh, for them. Uh, verses 9 to 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say, Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it was written of him. So, interesting. Uh, just like when Jesus told the disciples not to tell anybody he was the Messiah, because that would have created all kinds of false teaching and false expectations, he tells Peter, James, and John not to tell anybody what they had witnessed here uh, at the Transfiguration. 
until after the resurrection because Jesus knew they didn't understand what they saw. They didn't understand the implications of all that. Uh, they were trying to wrap their minds around it. And so Jesus gave many commands in the book of Mark to be silent. Uh, but this one is the only one that comes with a time limitation until after the resurrection, until the Son of Man rises from the dead. Then they could speak about the things they had seen on the mountain. Because if they spoke about it now, it would be misinterpreted. The people would try to seize him and make him king, and that would have derailed Jesus from his mission, which was the cross. After Jesus had risen from the dead, then the transfiguration would make a whole lot more sense to everybody. But for now, silence was the more prudent approach. So after the three are given that command by Jesus, they talk amongst themselves about what rising from the dead meant. What does this mean? You know, the apostles and the Jews in general, they had belief in an afterlife, in life after, after death. We know it from Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And we also see it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So the issue is not you know, necessarily life after death. The issue is, how can their Messiah die? They don't have any category for that. That's not what they expected from him because he, that goes against all of their expectations. So what do they do? I find it very interesting that, that instead of asking Jesus about rising from the dead, I think it was just too much for them to fathom. Instead, they shift their focus to, to what does this mean? What is this about Elijah that you're talking about? They, they couldn't fathom Jesus's death and resurrection, so they ask about Elijah instead. Now, there are two passages, particularly in Malachi, that speak to one who comes before uh, the great day of the Lord. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And then Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So they know these prophecies. Jesus has now just spoken of Elijah. They've just seen Elijah on the mountaintop. So what they're asking is, uh, had they uh, missed the coming of Elijah? Has that happened already? Or, or did we just see the coming of Elijah? And does that mean now the kingdom is about to be established on earth that we are expecting? Well, if they had just seen Elijah come before the glory and power of the Lord, they were about to get ready, right? Because they were about to see the kingdom of God established on earth. Now, to be fair to the prophets, it would have been, I mean, to the apostles, it would have been impossible for them to understand that, that Jesus was talking about two separate comings here. They could not have understood that at that time. And, that, and that even this Malachi, these two Malachi prophecies are separated by an indefinite length of time. We don't know. Uh, so in verse 13, uh, Jesus said, Elijah had already come. See that verse 13 in John the Baptist. Uh, Elijah was a symbol who, who foreshadowed the coming of John the Baptist. And just as Elijah was hunted uh, by a wicked queen uh, Jezebel and King Ahab, so John the Baptist met his fate at the hands of wicked uh, Herodias and King Herod. So in verse 13, he's talking about uh, what has already happened to John the Baptist. But in verse 12, now, Jesus says that Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. So in verse 12 now, he is talking about a second coming of Elijah, a future coming of Elijah, beyond John the Baptist. 
So Jesus was telling these, these apostles, this is a double fulfillment. He has already come, Elijah has, in the person of John the Baptist, and he's going to come again a second time to precede the coming of the great day of the Lord. Now, a lot of scholars think that if you read Revelation 11, there are two witnesses who testify for 1260 days about the coming of the Lord Jesus. And many scholars think that those two witnesses are Elijah and Moses who prophesied before Jesus' return. So we have these two, two uh, prophecies, one talked about by Jesus in verse 12, one in verse 13. But in between the two of them, uh, you see this statement uh, by Jesus, verse 12. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, here's the part the apostles don't understand. They don't understand that there is a gap between the two prophecies of Malachi. Uh, Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be humiliated. He must be killed to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, which is the suffering servant chapter, where Jesus dies on behalf of our sins. And so there is no way to glory without the suffering. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to his apostles. And so uh, in the transfiguration and in the explanation that followed, this is what Jesus is trying to communicate. There is future glory, and yet there must be suffering first. So the first thing he does on the mountain is he confirms his identity to these apostles uh, by three different ways of testimony, right? The transfiguration itself, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, and God's voice. So that proves that Jesus is who he says he is, and they were right to follow him. They were right to obey him, and it was all a little shot in the arm to boost their confidence that they were on the right path. But then on the way down the mountain, the second thing that Jesus does is reminds them that there are no shortcuts to glory. No shortcuts to glory. The way to glory is through suffering. And though Jesus would receive glory, he would not receive glory before he suffered. Elijah had come in the form of John the Baptist. He suffered. Jesus would suffer. The apostles, they too would suffer. And so will we. That's the bad news. But the good news is that Elijah will come again. And when he does, that is a sign that Jesus' return is near. And that is the good news. So I'm sure the apostles were amazed by this experience. Can you imagine what this must have been like to see Jesus in all his glory, to hear God's actual voice? What would that do for their confidence and for their faith that they, in fact, did have the right Messiah, that they were following the right one? And yet they didn't immediately get everything right after that either, did they? We'll find it just the next week, we'll see. They didn't get it right again. Uh, and so it's a process, it's a process. Uh, but everything that Jesus did for them, showed them, taught them, these were all little building blocks, building the wall of faith in these apostles so that uh, when he was gone, uh, he had transformed them uh, from unsure men to confident men, uh, from fearful men to faithful men, uh, from, from, from men who were scared of their own shadows uh, to courageous men uh, who would go out and proclaim the gospel. And we know that Jesus was successful because of the writings of John and of Peter after Jesus was gone. Here's what John wrote. He said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
And Peter is even more specific about what he saw uh, on the mountain in this passage. 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance from, or made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter talking specifically about what he had seen and, and note the transformation, right? John and Peter, not so sure. And now look at what they write, you know, writing about what Jesus did and who he was. And, and in Peter's case, dying for his faith. In John's case, uh, being exiled and, and suffering all kinds of, of things as a result of being a, an apostle of Jesus. So what happened in those two guys? Change happened, transformation happened as a result of seeing Jesus glorified in his glorified state and, and following Jesus. Now for us, we have the benefit of living on this side of the cross, right? We know way more than the apostles did at the time. We've seen uh, through reading the scriptures and, and uh, through prayer and through just being part of the Christian community, we know that Jesus was raised from the dead. We know how the story ends. The apostles, they were told, but they didn't quite get it yet. And so we know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. And so we have even more reason to allow God to transform us and to obey him than even the apostles did at the time. And still, following Jesus is not easy, is it? Jesus said there would be trouble. He said uh, that suffering must precede glory. And so that's true in all of our lives. And so for us, like if we're struggling with doubt or struggling with fear sometimes, wouldn't it be awesome like if we had a transfiguration moment where God, you know, parted the clouds and say, you know, showed himself in all his glory and spoke to us and said, you know, it's all going to be okay. Just continue on the path, you know. But that's where faith comes in, right? We walk by faith and not by sight. We know, we have full confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so Jesus has been training us and transforming us. And he's shown each of us little glimpses of his power and his glory just by saving us. That in itself is a miracle. And that's without even mentioning everything he's done after our salvation. So we know who he is. And listening and obeying to Jesus are the marks of a disciple. So let's just finish this with a couple of applications. And the first one is that we ought to be transformed. We must be transformed. That's what Jesus' ministry to his apostles was about. Uh, he was trying to transform them, to change them from the inside out. And so Jesus' transfiguration was one teaching tool. Uh, and it was shown to Peter, James, and John to give them a glimpse of who he really is. Jesus' purpose was to show them who he was so that uh, they would be transformed and know that they were right to follow him. And only by being transformed themselves would they be equipped to the ministry that he had prepared for them. And Jesus wants the same for us. He wants us to be transformed through reading the word, through prayer, through asking for God's will to be done. And he will transform us. He's transforming us day by day, uh, and we will follow him more completely. So you and I, we are not the same people we were a year ago if we are following Jesus Christ. We are more confident in him. We are growing in faith. We are stronger in our faith, and we are becoming uh, better disciples of Christ as we go. And yet, the work is never done. 
because our sinful selves want to rebel against what God tells us to do. And so a true disciple is transformed, and that transformation results in obedience. A true disciple has recognized the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ as the disciples saw it. A true disciple has received Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's counted the cost. He's surrendered his will uh, to make Jesus Lord of his life. And that means obedience, no matter what Jesus asks us to do or how hard it may seem, uh, the road that he gives us to walk. And so Jesus gives us little shots in the arm along the way, little encouragements, just like he did at the transfiguration for these disciples. And, and for me, I was just thinking recently about how God has encouraged me just, you know, over the last few weeks. Uh, he's, he's been so encouraging to me, uh, allowing me to go back to Camp Spofford in New Hampshire and preach the gospel there. It was a great encouragement to me to, and really uplifted my spirit. <clears throat> Coming back here, returning here, and knowing that some of you uh, may have missed me, that was a real encouragement to me. I enjoyed that. Uh, I got to minister to Jane Crutcher uh, when her husband passed. That was uh, a blessing to get to share the gospel to, to a room full of people. Uh, carving out time so I could visit my parents in Florida, that was a real blessing to me. And that's just in the last month. These are just little gifts that God has given me uh, to encourage me, to keep me on the path, to be faithful, to obey whatever tasks he gives me uh, to do. So how about you? Uh, how can you recount what God's been doing in your life in the last month, six months, 12 months, whatever, to, to encourage you? He uses everything to transform us into the disciples that he wants us to be. In your minds, just replaying what God has done in saving you, for one thing, and then just what he's done over the past few weeks, few months, uh, that, that can help to encourage you and to transform you into someone uh, that he wants you to be. So we've already seen Jesus, and we have beheld his glory. That's why we're believers, because we have, have seen him and who he is and received him as our Lord and Savior. But now we now need to continue to allow him uh, to transform us into who he wants us to be. We need to obey him no matter what. And we need to remember the transfiguration teaches us that glory is coming. And so praise the Lord for the glory that he promises. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the transfiguration. Uh, it is so meaningful, uh, and Lord, it gives us such hope as we think about uh, our own futures and what you promised us, Lord. Yes, life can be hard. Yes, there may be suffering, but we know that glory is coming, Lord, and, and you have promised us uh, things beyond our imagination. Uh, and so, Lord, we just thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus' death on the cross, and uh, by faith in him we are saved. And because of these things, Lord, we know that we will see glory even if we suffer uh, momentarily on this earth. Lord, give us the courage to continue walking on the path, Lord, and continue to transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.